right, before I get to my next guest, Ian Baker Finch, I want to give a shout out to our friends at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You're only going to find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, lighter grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret that pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus 4 technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play Plus 4 and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip golf pride. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me is 1991 Open champion and a fantastic broadcaster now, Ian Baker Finch. Let me remind you about Ian's background. He's from Queensland, Australia, turned pro in 1979, and he credits Jack Nicklaus as his greatest golf influence, saying he based his game on Mr. Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. He won his first professional tournament at the 1983 New Zealand Open, finished third in the World Series of Golf in 1988, and started playing regularly on the PGA Tour in 89, won his first PGA Tour event at the 89 Southwestern Bell Colonial, won the 1991 Open Championship at Royal Burkdale, finishing with rounds of 64 and 66, to win by two over fellow countryman Mike Harwood and three strokes over Fred Couples and Marco Mira. Following year, he finished uh, sixth at the Masters and second at the Players' Championship. In 2000, he was awarded the Australian Sports Medal for his achievement in Australian sports, and he's now clearly one of the best golf analysts in the business, and I'm very honored he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ian, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks very much, Chris. Good to be with you, and thanks for having me on again. So, Ian, um, I wanted to start out by, you know, kind of getting your thoughts about what we're seeing out on the PGA Tour right now. We, we've got Bryson DeChambeau bombing at 420-plus yards off the tee. We've got COVID, that the guy staying in the bubble. Um, a lot happening in and around the PGA Tour, which is sort of odd, and I say odd just because Guys hitting the ball over 400 yards off the tee isn't something we're used to seeing. What's your thoughts about what you're seeing on tour right now? Well, you've mentioned quite a few of the things that are, are interesting to watch. It's great that golf is back as the only sport on television at the moment. Um, I think that's a, a credit to the game of golf itself, how it is uh, you know, available to everybody to be able to get out and and lead a healthy lifestyle and, and be a part of this great game. So that's, that's a wonderful part about golf and the PGA Tour being back on television and back on CBS. And for me and the rest of the CBS team, it's great to be, uh, you know, a part of everyone's living rooms on the weekends now and, and bringing golf to everybody and showing these great players and, and showing the, 
uh, the, the talent out there, but it's strange in that there's no people out there watching them. So I think that, to me, is is the most interesting part of all of this. Yeah, what's it like as a broadcaster, you know, only hearing sort of the odd clap, you know, from someone who's probably standing in their backyard watching watching the tournament? No no roars, nothing of, of that kind, is it? What's it like, you know, kind of being out there, but there's you're, you're missing all of the fan interaction? Yeah, it's interesting. It's, um, I thought it was amazing about two weeks ago when Justin Thomas hold that 50-foot putt on the final green during the playoff against Colin Morikawa at the workday. And the only thing you heard was him yelling out his own expletives and his own excitement at holding the putt. Normally, that would be a huge deafening roar and uh, we'd have 20 different angles shown by CBS from all our great camera operators, uh, you know, showing the excitement in the crowd up there on the hill and Jack Nicholas and his wife, Barbara, and everyone around. And then all we had was the player's response or the caddy's response or, you know, 10 or other people around. So, that part of it is really unreal. The one good thing is that we're getting to see all these great golf courses um, for what they are. Uh, we, we show great angles and great views of, of the great golf courses. And without crowds, you, you actually get to see the entire golf course. So I think that would be the only plus. For the players, it's got to be surreal. You know, they're out there like they're playing in a, in a college tournament. In fact, Tiger was asked about it. He said, uh, well, I had a few people following me in college as well. You know, and they said, is this like being back <laughs> in college? You know, Tiger always had a thousand people following him. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see and interesting to see how some players react better and, and some worse to the surroundings. Ian, do you think, and as you mentioned that, uh, that put from Justin Thomas at the workday, do you think the lack of crowds is actually having an impact on the tournament? Here's why I say that. If, if when Justin makes that putt and the crowd typically goes crazy, like you mentioned, it's got to be a lot different trying to then put another putt in on top of that for Morikawa with, you know, kind of battling that sort of roar and that sort of thing. Does it make it, you know, somewhat easier? Is the pressure less because there was nobody out there? So it's easier to step up and make that putt. Mm, I, that's a very good question, an interesting one that I really can't give a, I can give a truthful answer. I don't know. But also, I think some players kind of relish the fact that it's just them and just their ability and just their inner thoughts or feelings, whereas some are enhanced by the crowd reaction and that uh, enormity you know, of what's going on around them and the, and the experience involved. So I don't know at that time if it made Colin Morikawa's 20-foot putt any easier. Uh, I, I doubt it did just because he still had to go do it, right, after right. all that. But I know, I know what you mean. It's a, it's a difficult one. And I, I don't really – I haven't seen a trend yet which ones, which players are playing worse with no crowds and which players are playing better, we can only go with, you know, the results that we've seen. Do you think we're headed towards a, uh, a patronless masters 
Do you think we'll have uh, any patrons at that event, or do you think we're going to go without uh, fans or patrons for out the, the rest of the golf season? Once again, I, I'd be guessing. Uh, I'm hoping that we have patrons by then. That will be the second week of November. Um, at least a limited number of patrons, perhaps. I don't know how we do the, the six feet apart at a golf tournament with thousands of people. But, um, it's going to be different as it is being held in November as opposed to around Easter time in April. Um, I think the course will show beautifully. It'll be something different. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun to cover on CBS. Uh, whether or not crowds will be a, a, available or, or allowed, or, uh, I don't know. Do they, do they even do it if there's no crowds? I'm not sure, but that will be up to everyone at Augusta National. And you know, it's just such a special tournament and great place. I, I hope it happens, and I hope it happens with with people there to watch. It's also a place that you've had some success during your playing days. You, you finished tied for seventh in 91, tied for sixth in 92, tied for 10th in 94. Talk about the success that you had while you got the opportunity to be a part of the Masters. Uh, I love playing there. I love the golf course. I, I first played there in 1985. Um, the greens were too fast for me. I was... I grew up a country boy on Bermuda greens that were running about four and a half on the stint meter. Um, the surrounds of greens are better now than the greens I grew up on. So when I first started putting on fast greens, I, I learned the game, and it's a different game, as, as people that know what I'm talking about can attest, going from slow Bermuda to very fast bent. But I was an aggressive putter, and when I got to the Masters, the greens were so fast and the lipouts were so severe that I never really putted well there. And I feel in 91 and 92, I really could have won had I not had as many three putts as I did. Uh, but the greens were in great shape. The golf course is just spectacular. You know, nothing better. And I always enjoyed being there. Um, I wasn't a long hitter, but um, you, most players could still reach the par fives. This is talking about the early 90s. Uh, now it's with irons, but back then it was, you know, long irons and, and fairway woods. But I, I still think if I'd putted a little better, if I hadn't been so aggressive, I, I may have had a chance to, to really win there. Uh, but I, I still enjoy going back each year and I get a chance to play there occasionally with friends and, uh, to cover the tournament is, uh, is a great privilege. That's for sure. You mentioned your first trip there in 85. Do you remember? When the uh, invitation came in the mail and what uh, your first drive up Magnolia Lane was like? Yeah, do I ever. Uh, it was pretty amazing because I, I played well in the Open Championship the year before and uh, had a chance to win and uh, didn't, obviously. Seve Ballesteros had won so well. But I, when I received uh, towards the end of that year the invitation for the Masters, it was a big deal because I was only just 24 years of age and in those days, that was still young to be invited as an international player to come play. And the drive up Magnolia Lane, and I had my friend from Australia come caddy for me. And, yeah, it was a very special time, uh, a memory I'll never forget. Uh, once again, I, I didn't putt well there. I, I played nicely, but didn't putt well. I missed the cut. But first time at the Masters, I think, for any player that you ask, Chris, on this show or any time you get a chance, 
they will always remember that first time up Magnolia Lane and, and their first time teeing off at the Masters. Ian, I read that you learned how to play the game by reading Jack Nicholas's book, Golf My Way. And then mid-80s, early 90s, you're playing in major championship fields along with him. What was that like? Yeah, very, once again, very special. He's become a very good friend and, and a friend of the family. We live in the same area now down in Jupiter, Palm Beach Gardens area in Florida. And he and Barbara were instigated uh, our move here when we came back to do television about 20 years ago. We came back to this area because of the Nicholases and their family and Jackie and all the brothers and sisters, a good friend. When I first had the chance to play with Jack, my idol, um, it was surreal. Uh, I couldn't believe it. But the first time Jack's caddy came over and asked me in 1985 at the Open Championship at Royal St. George's. And he said, uh, Jack's going out for a practice round. Would you like to come join him? And I, I said, are you kidding me? I'd, I'd love to. I, I, I don't remember this, but I probably dumped the other two Aussie friends that I had to go play with Jack, I don't, I don't know, but if I didn't, I, I would have. <laughs> you know what I mean? And just Jack and I went and played, and yeah, it was uh, great memories. And as I said, we, we played quite a few times over the years, and I've, I've been uh, a member alongside him at the Bears Club down here in uh, in Jupiter, Florida, for for a long while. I played with him there, and you know, just to now. Um, be a friend of my idol uh, is something extra special. So you got to tell me, you, you you get an opportunity the first time to play with your idol in a practice round. And, you know, you get sort of that you know, out of nowhere invitation to go do it. What do you say to him? What do you, what's what's the conversation like? You know, what's it like trying to put a peg in the ground to try to tee off and then talk to him throughout the rest of that practice round? Um, I, I remember a few bits and pieces along the way, but. If you think I was 24 and he's 20 years my senior, so he was more a, a big brother, almost father figure in a way at that time. And and as my idol and playing in my, um, I played in the Open in 84, the Masters in 85. So it was only my third major championship um, to, to play alongside him in a practice round and, and pick his brain and get a feeling for that golf course. And uh, it was just a special afternoon for me. Just a, um, one, one of those indelible memories as, as a young pro coming along. You know, at, at that time, I was just happy to be playing in an open championship. I wasn't a champion at that time. I was just one of the guys playing and to be playing alongside the GOAT was something extra special. And I want to talk about your 1991 open championship at Royal Birkdale and you sort of burst into the lead thanks to a third-round 64 that included nine threes, and you finished eagle birdie. Talk about everything sort of coming together right then. Yeah, it was amazing. I'd, I'd had a great summer. I'd been playing well every week on the tour, and I'd lost in a playoff the week before that I, I should have won. And, um, well, everyone always thinks they should win a playoff, shouldn't they? But in my mind, you know, I was playing well enough to win, put it that way. So I came in and I'd shot 71-71 the first two rounds but hadn't held a putt. But no one was really putting well. The course was in great shape, but the greens were, were difficult to putt. And 
Birkdale was is always windy and relentless. And I just found something on that homeward stretch and on the second nine, uh, two two putted a uh, number of holes, you know, made a good putt from 30, 40 feet across the green on 17 for Eagle and then knocked it stiff, tapped in for birdie at the last. I just felt in a good place. You know, I was, I was playing nicely, hold a few putts, uh, got into that last group on the Sunday, which I'd been in a couple of times before at, uh, at St. Andrews. And that just gave me a feeling of maybe this is the time. This is my chance. I'm playing well. I just have to go out tomorrow and uh, play the way I'd been playing. So what was it like sleeping on a share of the lead going into the final round of the Open Championship? Particularly, you mentioned Seve earlier. Seve, you had to be the sentimental favorite. He was right there looming only two strokes back. Yeah, it was, there was a lot of good players right there. Uh, Freddie Couples, Greg Norman, uh, Eamon Darcy from Ireland. Uh, Mike Harwood, Mark O'Meara, who, who I was paired with in the final grouping um, on Sunday. There was there was a lot of good players, and to me, it was a matter of just trying to treat it like I'd been playing, treat it like another PGA Tour event, treat it like a a regular tournament, which is always hard to do at a major, and even harder to do when you're a chance or when you feel like you're playing well and a and a, and a good chance of winning. So. That was my main aim, and I was able to do that. Came out firing, you know, the next day and uh, got the job done. But it's, I, I never worried about the sleep or the, you know, it, that never troubled me. I stayed with my wife, Jenny, and my little baby, Haley. Jenny was pregnant with our second daughter, Laura. And we were in a house uh, just sort of treating it like a, uh, a regular at-home week, as we tried to do, you know, during the majors. And um, my main aim, as I said, was just to go and play the next day the way I had been playing and put aside the fact that it was the Open. And you say you came out firing the next day. You sure did. You you birdied five of your first seven holes. You went out in 29 and equal Tom Watson's record of 130 for the last 36 holes. And that's as good a golf as, as you could possibly play. I mean, you block everything out. You didn't hear, did you hear anything? You know, Sebi's crowd, any of that sort of stuff. Talk about just blistering the course. You came off a blistering round and you did it again the next day. That's hard to do. Yeah, it is. And that, that's, um, that's the thing that, uh, golfers struggle with. Um, well, most golfers, not Tiger. Uh, not the guys that have won multiple times, they figure it out. But when you're trying to win your first major, there's so many distractions. And I, I learned so much from playing with my friend Nick Faldo the year before in the final group again on the Sunday at St. Andrews. He, he just went about it like uh, he was just playing like he knew he was going to win. And nothing bothered him. And I saw everything. I saw everything going on around me. And, and he just sort of kept about his business and I think that's what really helped me the most in winning was having watched him the year before and seeing how clinical he made it and uh, how focused he was so that's that was the key to me was my breathing focused on my breathing focused on the shots I wanted to hit um, I had a big advantage going into the second nine and I my goal was to just hit the fairway hit the green and two putt which I did 
all the way through. And then the 18th with a three-shot lead, I just played safe down the left rough, made sure I avoided the bunkers, uh, laid up just short of the green, chipped on, two-putted for five to uh, to win by two. So I, I just did all of the right things. You know, I, I focused well, concentrated well, and didn't let anything bother me. That 18th hole, when you when you lay up short, you've got a three-stroke lead, you're you're dry, you're safe, you know, you can get up and down at four from there, and, you know, probably in your sleep. What's it like walking up that 18th fairway, knowing you're about to become the Open champion? Um, I, I, all the way up till the very second to last shot, I, I blocked it out. You know, I tried to enjoy it. I wave to all the crowd as you do. You know, the, the grandstands, the bleachers there are, are fantastic. The crowds are uh, second to none. But at the same time, I still kept telling myself, you still have to get this done. And uh, I can tell you one one story about the moment. I had that little pitch from probably 35 yards to the hole. And uh, I'm lining up and my caddy, Pete, it was just sensational, Pete Bender, great caddy, great friend. He said, uh, you know, you can just play it over there to the left of the bunker and, and two-putt, you know. And I said, hey, if I can't pitch it over the edge of that bunker, I don't deserve to win the Open. And uh, I hit a little lob wedge from a firm lie, actually almost hold it, and hit the edge of the hole and ran a few feet by and two-putted for the bogey. But it, I still, in my mind, I still had to do it. I didn't allow myself to really enjoy it until the putt was in. So when you got to spend a year with a claret jug, what are some of the fun things that you got to do with that over the course of those 365 days? Did you, how many people you drank out of it? What, what fun things did you do with it? The, the most important thing is I got to share it with friends and people that meant something to me and my family along the way. Uh, I got to leave it. For extended periods of time at various clubs that I was a member of, Lake Nona, Narworth, uh, back home in Australia. Uh, so I, I got to share it around and um, got to drink lots of champagne, um, lots of cold Aussie beers and lots of great red wine with friends. So I think that was the most memorable thing was I cherished it and I got to cherish it with my friends and family and I still do. I, I have a, a replica, of course, here in my office, and uh, we we share it with friends. Certainly, Open Championship Week, which I didn't get to do uh, last week uh, this year, but um, toast the winner each year on you know drink a, a fine bottle of red wine out of it. And I think to me that's the, the most enjoyable side of it. it. It's a great trophy and a great honour to to hold it. But uh, to share it with friends and, and people that uh, enjoyed the journey, that was the most important thing. And just a couple more before I let you go. And we look ahead to this week at the, the FedEx WGC event at TPC Southwind in Memphis. What do you expect to see at this week's tournament? Well, as usual, I, get, I expect to see the guys that strike it the best win. And that's what always happens. Uh, there in Memphis, it's, it's a great golf course, especially with the Bermuda Green since they changed them over the last 10 years or so. It's always the best ball strikers and the best drivers of the ball that win there. So I look forward to seeing that. Um, once again, 
those guys that drive the ball so far. Dustin Johnson's had success there. Brooks Kepka, uh, Daniel Berger, who won at Colonial about a month ago, the first time back. They're the guys that play well there every year. So I look forward to seeing that. I think Colin Morikawa will do well. I think Bryson DeChambeau will do well. Um, it's a good golf course and it's a great championship. And, you know, of all of the events we play, the crowds there were spectacular. And we're not going to have crowds, but the people that run the event, that support the event, the volunteers, all sort of all the FedEx uh, employees there in Memphis, they really get behind that tournament. It's really something special. Really enjoy going back there each year. And I read at the 2007 Barclays tournament while you were covering it for CBS, you got hit by an errant shot by Rich Beam in the cheek. <laughs> that momentarily knocked you out. Do you uh, you remind Rich of that every time you see him? <laughs> uh, not every time. It's either he reminds me or I remind him. But yeah, that was pretty amazing. I was about to interview uh, Bob Diamond, the head of Barclays, and uh, I, I think he would have got it right in the middle of the face if I hadn't been in the way because the ball, you know, bounced back off the the scaffolding of the bleachers. And hit me in the in the side of the face. But if I'd been like two inches further back, it would have got Bob right in the mouth as he was facing me. But yeah, it was. Um, I've been hit a couple of times on television. Actually, I got hit in the head in Australia by Bernhard Langer. I was doing an interview over the back of a green one time, and he hit me in the head. And I went down. So uh, I think that might be another record being hit in the head <laughs> twice whilst uh, you know doing an interview on television. No. <laughs> Um, and I don't know if you heard the end of my uh, conversation with Tim Simpson, but, um, he said, you know, Hey, if there were four words to describe Ian Baker Finch, it would be pure class and total gentleman. And if you had to ask me for two more words, it would be amazing putter. And, uh, we were talking just prior to the show. He said, you know, if, uh, with my ball striking and, and how well Ian could putt, you could have put us both together, the world that would have never heard of Tiger Woods. Your thoughts about that? <laughs> well, that's very kind of Tim to say. I miss him. I haven't seen him for so long because we both stopped playing the tour around the same time. Uh, 20 years or so ago, he was injured and he had terrible bout with Lyme's disease. and uh, I lost my confidence and, and didn't play well enough to compete anymore, so I stepped down and stood away. But yet, there weren't any better ball strikers 30 years ago than Tim Simpson. He played really, really well. He was, he was, um, uh, an excellent straight hitter and a really solid iron player. And, and had, as he's right, if I'd putted for him, he would have won a lot of times. That's for sure. So, uh, I hope he's well. I hope his family's well. Uh, you, you, you meet so many great guys out here on tour over the years and we're all one big happy family when we're out here, but. When you move move aside, I've been very fortunate during the telecasts and being a part of television for so many years that I've kind of stayed in touch with the tour and, and all the players. But those that have stepped aside or got old like myself and got grey hair and gone and look after their children and grandchildren, I, I miss them. You know, you really uh, it really is a, a big family out here on tour. Ian, before I let you go. Let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing and follow you, whether it's online or it's over social media. 
Oh, sure. Well, you can follow me from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern any weekend on CBS. That's the that's the best way you can follow the PGA Tour and, and listen in. Uh, I'm not a big social media guy. I don't self-promote, but um, I'm at Ivy Finchie um, on Twitter and uh, post a lot of shots of my grandchild, little Eloise, on Instagram. And But uh, once again, I'm, I'm not selling anything. I'm just uh, happy to be a part of the the telecast on CBS. We have a wonderful family led by Jim Nance, who we all know, and uh, just just a, a happy band there at CBS doing what we love to do and, and calling the golf for our fans and everyone back home on the weekends. Well, Ian, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. It's always fun spending time with you. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon. Anytime, Chris. Thank you very much. Take care, Ian. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe out there. And to you too, sir. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. That's the great Ian Baker Finch. Um, you know, you want to talk about a guy who had a tremendous playing career and is now, like I say, one of, in, in my mind, for my money, the best golf analyst out there, whether it's on radio or it's on television. The guy just does a tremendous job painting the picture for us every week of what's happening out there on the PGA Tour and then, you know, giving us insightful analysis as well. So it teaches us something, plus it paints a great picture. Ian's a, uh, like, like Tim Simpson said, you know, at the end of his, uh, his interview, Ian's a wonderful person and a great guy. And, uh, it's uh, always a privilege to get to spend some time with him. Hopefully we get that privilege again real soon. I hope, uh, I'll reach back out to him. Maybe we can get him on the show. If, if we have a Masters this year, he would be a great guest to have on around that time. All right, before I close up shop tonight, I want to give a couple of more shout-outs. First to our new sponsor over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Finn for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800 
888-888-8154. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the T. want to send out my sincere thanks again to Tim Simpson and Ian Baker Finch for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, nextonthetea.net, to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. You can also stream us on a number of great sites and apps like podcast.co and can't thank those guys enough for their great support of the show. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, and I also want to welcome radio.com as a new platform offering our show as a podcast as well. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We really appreciate the fact that you're continuing to make us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.